This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 14 The Last Stand of the Greys in a few more minutes the regiments destined to carry out the flanking movements had tramped off in silence, keeping carefully to the lee of the rising ground in order to conceal their advance from the keen eyes of Twala's scouts. Half an hour or more was allowed to elapse between the setting out of the horns or wings of the army before any stir was made by the greys and their supporting regiment, known as the buffaloes, which formed its chest, and were destined to bear the brunt of the battle. Both of these regiments were almost perfectly fresh and of full strength, the greys having been in reserve in the morning, and having lost but a small number of men in sweeping back that part of the attack which had proved successful in breaking the line of defense on the occasion when I charged with them and was stunned for my pains. As for the buffaloes, they had formed the third line of defense on the left, and since the attacking force at that point had not succeeded in breaking through the second, they had scarcely come into action at all. Infadus, who was a wary old general, and knew the absolute importance of keeping up the spirits of his men on the eve of such a desperate encounter, employed the pause in addressing his own regiment, the Greys, in poetical language, explaining to them the honor that they were receiving in being put thus in the forefront of the battle, and in having the great white warrior from the stars to fight with them in their ranks, and promising large rewards of cattle and promotion to all who survived in the event of Ignosi's arms being successful. I looked down the long lines of waving black plumes and stern faces beneath them, and sighed to think that within one short hour most, if not all, of those magnificent veteran soldiers, not a man of whom was under forty years of age, would be laid dead or dying in the dust. It could not be otherwise. They were being condemned, with that wise recklessness of human life which marks the great general and often saves his forces and attains his ends to certain slaughter in order to give their cause and the remainder of the army a chance of success. They were foredoomed to die, and they knew the truth. It was to be their task to engage regiment after regiment of Twala's army on the narrow strip of green beneath us till they were exterminated or till the wings found a favorable opportunity for their onslaught. And yet they never hesitated, nor could I detect a sign of fear upon the face of a single warrior. There they were, going to certain death, about to quit the blessed light of day forever, and yet able to contemplate their doom without a tremor. Even at that moment I could not help contrasting their state of mind with my own, 
which was far from comfortable, and breathing a sigh of envy and admiration. Never before had I seen such an absolute devotion to the idea of duty, and such a complete indifference to its bitter fruits. "'Behold your king!' ended old Infadus, pointing to Ignosi. "'Go fight and fall for him, as it is the duty of brave men, and cursed and shameful forever be the name of him who shrinks from death for his king, or who turns his back to the foe. Behold your king, chiefs, captains, and soldiers. Now do your homage to the sacred snake, and then follow on, that Incubu and I may show you a road to the heart of Twala's host. There was a moment's pause, then suddenly a murmur arose from the serried phalanxes before us, a sound like the distant whisper of the sea, caused by gentle tapping of the handles of six thousand spears against the holder's shields. Slowly it swelled, till its growing volume deepened and widened into a roar of rolling noise that echoed like thunder against the mountains and filled the air with heavy waves of sound. Then it decreased, and by faint degrees died away into nothing, and suddenly out crashed the royal salute. Ignosi, I thought to myself, might well be a proud man that day, for no Roman emperor ever had such a salutation from gladiators about to die. Ignosi acknowledged this magnificent act of homage by lifting his battle-axe, and then the greys filed off in a triple-line formation, each line containing about 1,000 fighting men, exclusive of officers. When the last companies had advanced some 500 yards, Ignosi put himself at the head of the buffaloes, which regiment was drawn up in a similar threefold formation, and gave the word to march, and off we went. I, needless to say, uttering the most heartfelt prayers that I might emerge from that entertainment with a whole skin. Many a queer position have I found myself in, but never before in one quite so unpleasant as the present, or one in which my chance of coming off safe was smaller. By the time that we reached the edge of the plateau, the greys were already halfway down the slope ending in the tongue of grassland that ran up into the bend of the mountain, something as the frog of a horse's foot runs up into the shoe. The excitement in Twala's camp on the plain beyond was very great, and regiment after regiment was starting forward at a long swinging trot in order to reach the root of the tongue of land before the attacking force could emerge into the plain of Loo. This tongue, which was some four hundred yards in depth, even at its root or widest part was not more than six hundred and fifty paces across, while at its tip it scarcely measured ninety. The greys, who, in passing down the side of the hill and on to the tip of the tongue, had formed into a column, 
on reaching the spot where it broadened out again, reassumed their triple-line formation, and halted dead. Then we, that is, the buffaloes, moved down the tip of the tongue and took our stand in reserve, about one hundred yards behind the last line of the greys, and on slightly higher ground. Meanwhile we had leisure to observe Twala's entire force, which evidently had been reinforced since the morning attack, and could not now, notwithstanding their losses, number less than forty thousand, moving swiftly up towards us. But as they drew near the root of the tongue they hesitated, having discovered that only one regiment could advance into the gorge at a time, and that there, some seventy yards from the mouth of it, unassailable except in front on account of the high walls of boulder-strewn ground on each side, stood the famous regiment of greys, the pride and glory of the Kukuana army, ready to hold the way against their power as the three Romans once held the bridge against thousands. They hesitated and finally stopped their advance. There was no eagerness to cross spears with these three grim ranks of warriors, who stood so firm and ready. Presently, however, a tall general, wearing the customary headdress of nodding ostrich plumes, appeared, attended by a group of chiefs and orderlies, being, I thought, none other than Twala himself. He gave an order, and the first regiment, raising a shout, charged up towards the greys, who remained perfectly still and silent, till the attacking troops were within forty yards, and a volley of twalas or throwing knives came rattling among their ranks. Then suddenly, with a bound and a roar, they sprang forward with uplifted spears, and the regiment met in deadly strife. Next second the roll of the meeting shields came to our ears like the sound of thunder, and the plain seemed to be alive with flashes of light reflected from the shimmering spears. To and fro swung the surging mass of struggling, stabbing humanity, but not for long. Suddenly the attacking lines began to grow thinner, and then with a slow, long heave the greys passed over them, just as a great wave heaves up its bulk and passes over a sunken ridge. It was done. That regiment was completely destroyed. But the greys had but two lines left now. A third of their number were dead. Closing up shoulder to shoulder, once more they halted in silence and awaited attack. And I was rejoiced to catch sight of Sir Henry's yellow beard as he moved to and fro arranging the ranks. So he was yet alive. Meanwhile, we moved on to the ground of the encounter, which was cumbered by about 4,000 prostrate human beings, dead, dying, and wounded, and literally stained red with blood. Ignosi issued an order, which was rapidly passed down to the ranks, to the effect that none of the enemy's wounded were to be killed, and so far as we could see this command was scrupulously carried out. It would have been a shocking sight if we had found time to think of such things. But now a second regiment, 
distinguished by white plumes, kilts, and shields, was moving to the attack of the two thousand remaining greys, who stood waiting in the same ominous silence as before, till the foe was within forty yards or so, when they hurled themselves with irresistible force upon them. Again there came the awful roll of the meeting shields, and as we watched the tragedy repeated itself. But this time the issue was left longer in doubt. Indeed, it seemed for a while almost impossible that the greys should again prevail. The attacking regiment, which was formed of young men, fought with the utmost fury, and at first seemed by sheer weight to be driving the veterans back. The slaughter was truly awful, hundreds falling every minute, and from among the shouts of the warriors and the groans of the dying, set to the music of clashing spears, came a continuous hissing undertone of Sigi, Sigi, the note of triumph of each victor as he passed his assegai through and through the body of his fallen foe. But perfect discipline and steady and unchanging valor can do wonders, and one veteran soldier is worth two young ones, as soon became apparent in the present case. For just when we thought that it was all over with the greys, and were preparing to take their place so soon as they made room by being destroyed, I heard Sir Henry's deep voice ringing out through the din, and caught a glimpse of his circling battle-axe as he waved it high above his plumes. Then came a change. The greys ceased to give. They stood still as a rock against which the furious waves of spearmen broke again and again, only to recoil. Presently they began to move once more, forward this time. As they had no firearms, there was no smoke, and we could see it all. Another minute, and the onslaught grew fainter. Ah, these are men indeed. They will conquer again, called out Ignosi, who was grinding his teeth with excitement at my side. See, it is done. Suddenly... Like puffs of smoke from the mouth of a cannon, the attacking regiment broke away in flying groups, their white headdresses streaming behind them in the wind, and left their opponents victors, indeed, but, alas, no more a regiment. Of the gallant triple line, which forty minutes before had gone into action three thousand men strong, there remained at most some six hundred blood-spattered men. The rest were underfoot. And yet they cheered and waved their spears in triumph. And then, instead of falling back upon us as we expected, they ran forward for a hundred yards or so, after the flying groups of foemen, took possession of a rising knoll of ground, and, resuming their triple formation, formed a threefold ring around its base. And there, thanks be to heaven, standing on the top of the mound for a minute, I saw Sir Henry, apparently unharmed, and with him our old friend Infadus. Then Twala's regiments rolled down upon the doomed band, and once more the battle closed in. As those who read this history will probably long ago have gathered, I am, to be honest, a bit of a coward, 
and certainly in no way given to fighting, though somehow it has often been my lot to get into unpleasant situations and to be obliged to shed man's blood. But I have always hated it, and kept my own blood as undiminished in quantity as possible, sometimes by a judicious use of my heels. At this moment, however, for the first time in my life, I felt my bosom burn with martial ardor. Warlike fragments from the Ingoldsby legends, together with numbers of sanguinary verses in the Old Testament, sprang up in my brain like mushrooms in the dark. My blood, which hitherto had been half frozen with horror, went beating through my veins, and there came upon me a savage desire to kill and spare not. I glanced round at the serried ranks of warriors behind us, and somehow, all in an instant, I began to wonder if my face looked like theirs. There they stood, their hands twitching, their lips apart, the fierce features instinct with the hungry lust of battle, and in the eyes a look like the glare of a bloodhound when after a long pursuit he sights his quarry. Only Ignosi's heart, to judge from his comparative self-possession, seemed to all appearances to beat as calmly as ever beneath his leopard-skin cloak, though even he still ground his teeth. I could bear it no longer. Are we to stand here till we put out roots, Umbopa, Ignosi, I mean, while Twyla swallows our brothers yonder? I asked. Nay, Makumazan, was the answer. See, now is the ripe moment. Let us pluck it. As he spoke, a fresh regiment rushed past the ring upon the little mound, and wheeling round, attacked it from the hither side. Then, lifting his battle-axe, Ignosi gave the signal to advance, and screaming the wild Kukuwana war-cry, the buffaloes charged home with a rush like the rush of the sea. What followed immediately on this, it is out of my power to tell, all I can remember is an irregular yet ordered advance that seemed to shake the ground. A sudden change of front and forming up on the part of the regiment against which the charge was directed. Then an awful shock, a dull roar of voices, and a continuous flashing of spears seen through a red mist of blood. When my mind cleared... I found myself standing inside the remnant of the greys near the top of the mound, and just behind no less a person than Sir Henry himself. How I got there I had at the moment no idea, but Sir Henry afterwards told me that I was borne up by the first furious charge of the buffaloes almost to his feet, and then left, as they in turn were pressed back. Thereon he dashed out of the circle and dragged me into shelter. As for the fight that followed, who can describe it? Again and again the multitudes surged against our momentarily lessening circle, and again and again we beat them back. The stubborn spearmen still made good the dark impenetrable wood, each stepping where his comrade stood the instant that he fell, as someone or other beautifully says. It was... A splendid thing to see those brave battalions come on time after time, 
over the barriers of their dead, sometimes lifting corpses before them to receive our spear thrusts, only to leave their own corpses to swell the rising piles. It was a gallant sight to see that old warrior, Infadus, as cool as though he were on parade, shouting out orders, taunts, and even jests, to keep up the spirit of his few remaining men. And then, as each charge rolled on, stepping forward to wherever the fighting was thickest, to bear his share in its repulse. And yet more gallant was the vision of Sir Henry, whose ostrich plumes had been shorn off by a spear thrust, so that his long yellow hair streamed out in the breeze behind him. There he stood, the great Dane, for he was nothing else, his hands, his axe, and his armor, all red with blood, and none could live before his stroke. Time after time I saw it sweeping down, as some great warrior ventured to give him battle, and as he struck it he shouted, Ahoy! Ahoy! like his berserkir forefathers, and the blow went crashing through shield and spear, through headdress, hair and skull, till at last none would of their own will come near the great white Umtagati, the wizard who killed and failed not. But suddenly there rose a cry of Twala! Itwala! And out of the press sprang forward none other than the gigantic one-eyed king himself, also armed with battle-axe and shield, and clad in chain armor. "'Where art thou, Inkaboo, thou white man, who slewest Scragga, my son? See if thou canst slay me,' he shouted, and at the same time hurled a tola straight at Sir Henry, who fortunately saw it coming, and caught it on his shield, which it transfixed, remaining wedged in the iron plate behind the hide. Then, with a cry, Twala sprang forward straight at him, and with his battle-axe struck him such a blow upon the shield that the mere force and shock of it brought Sir Henry, strong man as he is, down upon his knees. But at this time the matter went no further, for that instant there rose from the regiments pressing round us something like a shout of dismay, and on looking up I saw the cause. To the right and to the left, the plain was alive with the plumes of charging warriors. The outflanking squadrons had come to our relief. The time could not have been better chosen. All Twala's army, as Ignosi predicted would be the case, had fixed their attention on the bloody struggle which was raging round the remnant of the greys and that of the buffaloes, who were now carrying on a battle of their own at a little distance which two regiments had formed the chest of our army. It was not until our horns were about to close upon them that they had dreamed of their approach, for they believed these forces to be hidden in reserve upon the crest of the moon-shaped hill. And now, before they could even assume a proper formation for defense, the outflanking impies had leapt like greyhounds on their flanks. In five minutes the fate of the battle was decided. Taken on both flanks, and dismayed at the awful slaughter inflicted upon them by the greys and buffaloes, Twala's regiments broke into flight, and soon the whole plain between us and Lou 
was scattered with groups of running soldiers making good their retreat. As for the hosts that had so recently surrounded us and the buffaloes, they melted away as though by magic. And presently we were left standing there like a rock from which the sea has retreated. But what a sight it was! Around us the dead and dying lay in heaped-up masses, and of the gallant greys there remain but ninety-five men upon their feet. More than three thousand four hundred had fallen in this one regiment, most of them never to rise again. Men, said Infadus calmly, as between the intervals of binding a wound on his arm he surveyed what remained to him of his corps, ye have kept up the reputation of your regiment, and this day's fighting will be well spoken of by your children's children. Then he turned round and shook Sir Henry Curtis by the hand. Thou art a great captain, Inkibu, he said simply. I have lived a long time among warriors, and have known many a brave one. Yet have I never seen a man like unto thee. At this moment the buffaloes began to march past our position on the road to Lou, and as they went a message was brought to us from Ignosi requesting Infadus, Sir Henry, and myself to join them. Accordingly, orders having been issued to the remaining ninety men of the greys to employ themselves in collecting the wounded, we joined Ignosi, who informed us that he was pressing on to Lou to complete the victory by capturing Twala if that should be possible. Before we had gone far, suddenly we discovered the figure of Good sitting on an ant heap about one hundred paces from us. Close beside him was the body of a Kukuana. He must be wounded, said Sir Henry anxiously. As he made the remark, an untoward thing happened. The dead body of the Kukuana soldier, or rather what had appeared to be his dead body, suddenly sprang up, knocked Good head over heels off the ant heap, and began to spear him. We rushed forward in terror, and as we drew near, we saw the brawny warrior making dig after dig at the prostrate Good, who at each prod jerked all his limbs into the air. Seeing us coming, the Kukuana gave one final and most vicious dig, and with a shout of, Take that, wizard, bolted away. Good did not move, and we concluded that our poor comrade was done for. Sadly we came towards him, and were astonished to find him pale and faint indeed, but with a serene smile upon his face, and his eyeglass still fixed in his eye. Capital armor this! he murmured, on catching sight of our faces bending over him. How soul that beggar must have been! And then he fainted. On examination we discovered that he had been seriously wounded in the leg by Atola in the course of the pursuit, but that the chain armor had prevented his last assailant's spear from doing anything more than bruise him badly. It was a merciful escape. As nothing could be done for him at the moment, he was placed on one of the wicker shields used for the wounded, 
and carried along with us. On arriving before the nearest gate of Lu, we found one of our regiments watching it in obedience to orders received from Ignosi. The other regiments were in the same way guarding the different exits to the town. The officer in command of this regiment saluted Ignosi as king, and informed him that Twala's army had taken refuge in the town, whither Twala himself had also escaped. But he thought that they were thoroughly demoralized and would surrender. Thereupon Ignosi, after taking counsel with us, sent forward heralds to each gate, ordering the defenders to open, and promising on his royal word life and forgiveness to every soldier who laid down his arms, but saying that if they did not do so before nightfall, he would certainly burn the town and all within its gates. This message was not without its effect. Half an hour later, amid the shouts and cheers of the buffaloes, the bridge was dropped across the fosse, and the gates upon the further side were flung open. Taking due precautions against treachery, we marched on into the town. All along the roadways stood thousands of dejected warriors, their heads drooping, and their shields and spears at their feet, who, headed by their officers, saluted Ignosi as king as he passed. On we marched, straight to Twala's corral. When we reached the great space where a day or two previously we had seen the review and the witch hut, we found it deserted. No, not quite deserted, for there on the further side, in front of his hut, sat Twala himself, with but one attendant, Gagool. It was a melancholy sight to see him seated, his battle-axe and shield by his side, his chin upon his mailed breast, with but one old crone for companion, and notwithstanding his crimes and misdeeds, a pang of compassion shot through me as I looked upon Twala, thus fallen from his high estate. Not a soldier of all his armies, not a courtier out of the hundreds who had cringed round him, not even a solitary wife, remained to share his fate or have the bitterness of his fall. Poor savage, he was learning the lesson which fate teaches to most of us who live long enough, that the eyes of mankind are blind to the discredited, and that he who is defenseless and fallen finds few friends and little mercy. Nor, indeed, in this case, did he deserve any. Filing through the corral gate, we marched across the open space to where the ex-king sat. When within about fifty yards of him the regiment was halted, and accompanied by only a small guard, we advanced towards him, Gagool reviling us bitterly as we came. As we drew near, Twala, for the first time, lifted his plumed head, and fixed his one eye, which seemed to flash with suppressed fury almost as brightly as the great diamond round his forehead, upon his successful rival, Ignosi. Hail, O king, he said with bitter mockery, thou who hast eaten of my bread, and now by the aid of the white man's magic hast seduced my regiments and defeated mine army. Hail! 
What fate hast thou in store for me, O king? The fate thou gavest to my father, whose throne thou hast sat on these many years, was the stern answer. It is good. I will show thee how to die, that thou mayest remember it against thine own time. See, the sun sinks in blood, and he pointed with his battle-axe towards the setting orb. It is well that my son should go down in its company. And now, O king, I am ready to die, but I crave the boon of the Kukuwana royal house to die fighting. Note, it is a law amongst the Kukuanas that no man of the direct royal blood can be put to death unless by his own consent, which is, however, never refused. He is allowed to choose a succession of antagonists to be approved by the king, with whom he fights, till one of them kills him, Alan Quatermain. Thou canst refuse it, or even those cowards who fled today will hold thee shamed. It is granted. Choose with whom wilt thou fight. Myself I cannot fight with thee, for the king fights not except in war. Twala's sombre eye ran up and down our ranks, and I felt, as for a moment it rested on myself, that the position had developed a new horror. What if he chose to begin by fighting me? What chance should I have against a desperate savage six feet five high and broad in proportion? I might as well commit suicide at once. Hastily I made up my mind to decline the combat, even if I were hooted out of Kukuana land as a consequence. It is, I think, better to be hooted than to be quartered with a battle-axe. Presently Twala spoke. Inkibu, what sayest thou? Shall we end what we began today? Or shall I call thee coward, white even to the liver? Nay, interposed Ignosi hastily, thou shalt not fight with Enkibu. Not if he is afraid, said Twala. Unfortunately, Sir Henry understood this remark, and the blood flamed up in his cheeks. I will fight him, he said. He shall see if I am afraid. For heaven's sake, I entreated, don't risk your life against that of a desperate man. Anybody who saw you today will know that you are brave enough. I will fight him, was the sullen answer. No living man shall call me a coward. I am ready now. And he stepped forward and lifted his axe. I wrung my hands over this absurd piece of Quixoteism. But if he was determined on this deed, of course I could not stop him. Fight not, my white brother, said Ignosi, laying his hand affectionately on Sir Henry's arm. Thou hast fought enough, and if aught befell thee at his hands, it would cut my heart in twain. I will fight, Ignosi, was Sir Henry's answer. It is well, Inkubu. Thou art a brave man. It will be a good fray. 
Behold, Twala, the elephant is ready for thee. The ex-king laughed savagely, and stepping forward faced Curtis. For a moment they stood thus, and the light of the sinking sun caught their stalwart frames and clothed them both in fire. They were a well-matched pair. Then they began to circle round each other, their battle-axes raised. Suddenly Sir Henry sprang forward and struck a fearful blow at Twala, who stepped to one side. So heavy was the stroke that the striker half overbalanced himself, a circumstance of which his antagonist took a prompt advantage. Circling his massive battle-axe round his head, he brought it down with tremendous force. My heart jumped into my mouth. I thought that the affair was already finished. But no, with a quick upward movement of the left arm, Sir Henry interposed his shield between himself and the axe, with the result that its outer edge was shorn away, the axe falling on his left shoulder, but not heavily enough to do any serious damage. In another moment, Sir Henry got in a second blow, which was also received by Twala upon his shield. Then followed blow upon blow that were, in turn, either received upon the shields or avoided. The excitement grew intense. The regiment which was watching the encounter forgot its discipline, and drawing near, shouted and groaned at every stroke. Just at this time, too, Good, who had been laid upon the ground by me, recovered from his faint, and sitting up, perceived what was going on. In an instant he was up, and catching hold of my arm, hopped about from place to place on one leg, dragging me after him and yelling encouragements to Sir Henry. "'Go to it, old fellow!' he hallooed. "'That was a good one! Give it him amidships!' and so on. Presently Sir Henry, having caught a fresh stroke upon his shield, hit out with all his force. The blow cut through Twala's shield and through the tough chain armor behind it, gashing him in the shoulder. With a yell of pain and fury, Twala returned the blow with interest, and such was his strength, shore right through the rhinoceros's horn handle of his antagonist's battle-axe, strengthened as it was with bands of steel, wounding Curtis in the face. A cry of dismay rose from the buffaloes, as our hero's broad axe-head fell to the ground, and Twala, again raising his weapon, flew at him with a shout. I shut my eyes. When I opened them again, it was to see Sir Henry's shield lying on the ground, and Sir Henry himself with his great arms twined round Twala's middle. To and fro they swung, hugging each other like bears, "'straining with all their mighty muscles for dear life and dearer honor. "'With a supreme effort, Twala swung the Englishman clean off his feet, "'and down they came together, rolling over and over on the lime paving. "'Twala striking out at Curtis's head with the battle-axe, "'and Sir Henry trying to drive the tola he had drawn from his belt through Twala's armor.' 
It was a mighty struggle, and an awful thing to see. "'Get his axe!' yelled Good, and perhaps our champion heard him. At any rate, dropping the tola, he snatched at the axe, which was fastened to Twala's wrist by a strip of buffalo hide, and still rolling over and over, they fought for it like wildcats, drawing their breath in heavy gasps. Suddenly the hide string burst, and then with a great effort Sir Henry freed himself, the weapon remaining in his hand. Another second and he was upon his feet, the red blood streaming from the wound in his face, and so was Twala. Drawing the heavy tola from his belt, he reeled straight at Curtis and struck him in the breast. The stab came home true and strong, but whoever it was who made that chain armor, he understood his art, for it withstood the steel. Again, Twala struck out with a savage yell, and once more the sharp knife rebounded, and Sir Henry went staggering back. Once more Twala came on, and as he came our great Englishman gathered himself together, and swinging the big axe round his head with both hands, hit at him with all his force. There was a shriek of excitement from a thousand throats, and behold, Twala's head seemed to spring from his shoulders. Then it fell and came rolling and bounding along the ground towards Ignosi, stopping just at his feet. For a second the corpse stood upright. Then, with a dull crash, it came to the earth, and the gold torque from its neck rolled away across the pavement. As it did so, Sir Henry, overpowered by faintness and loss of blood, fell heavily across the body of the dead king. In a second he was lifted up, and eager hands were pouring water on his face. Another minute, and the gray eyes opened wide. He was not dead. Then I, just as the sun sank, stepping to where Twala's head lay in the dust, unloosed the diamond from the dead brows, and handed it to Ignosi. Take it, I said, lawful king of the Kukuanas, king by birth and victory. Ignosi bound the diadem upon his brows. Then advancing, he placed his foot upon the broad chest of his headless foe, and broke out into a chant, or rather a paean of triumph, so beautiful and yet so utterly savage, that I despair of being able to give an adequate version of his words. Once I heard a scholar with a fine voice read aloud from the Greek poet Homer, and I remember that the sound of the rolling lines seemed to make my blood stand still. Ignosi's chant, uttered as it was in a language as beautiful and sonorous as the old Greek, produced exactly the same effect on me, although I was exhausted with toil and many emotions. Now, he began, now our rebellion is swallowed up in victory, and our evil doing is justified by strength. In the morning the oppressors arose and stretched themselves. They bound on their harnesses and made them ready to war. They rose up and tossed their spears. 
the soldiers called to the captains, Come, lead us, and the captains cried to the king, Direct thou the battle. They laughed in their pride, twenty thousand men, and yet a twenty thousand. Their plumes covered the valleys as the plumes of a bird cover her nest. They shook their shields and shouted, yea, they shook their shields in the sunlight. They lusted for battle and were glad. They came up against me. Their strong ones ran swiftly to slay me. They cried, ha, ha, he is as one already dead. Then I breathed on them, and my breath was as the breath of a wind. And lo, they were not. My lightnings pierced them. I licked up their strength with the lightning of my spears. I shook them to the ground with the thunder of my shoutings. They broke. They scattered. They were gone as the mists of the morning. They are food for the kites and the foxes, and the place of battle is fat with their blood. Where are the mighty ones who rose up in the morning? Where are the proud ones who tossed their spears and cried, He is as a man already dead? They bow their heads, but not in sleep. They are stretched out, but not in sleep. They are forgotten. They have gone into the blackness. They dwell in the dead moons. Yea, others shall lead away their wives and their children shall remember them no more. And I, the king, like an eagle, I have found my eyrie. Behold, far have I flown in the night season, yet have I returned to my young at the daybreak. Shelter ye under the shadow of my wings, O people, and I will comfort you, and ye shall not be dismayed. Now is the good time, the time of spoil. Mine are the cattle on the mountains, mine are the virgins in the corrals. The winter is overpassed with storms, the summer is ready to come with flowers. Now evil shall cover up her face, now mercy and gladness shall dwell in the land. Rejoice! Rejoice, my people. Let all the stars rejoice in that this tyranny is trodden down, in that I am the king. Ignosi ceased his song, and out of the gathering gloom came back the deep reply, Thou art the king. Thus was my prophecy to the herald fulfilled. And within the forty-eight hours, Twala's headless corpse was stiffening at Twala's gate. End of chapter 14